0: I'm back, and today, i uh, get excited to continue our series, The Names of God. But first, let's do what we always do, is go through this, so that way you know what we've got uh, going for you. The first thing, if you take out your bulletin on the inside, you'll see this green connection card. It is so lovely, I know you want to give it away. and So why don't you fill out out, just put your name on there, and then later on in the service, you can drop this in the offering basket. This does a couple things for us, it lets us know that you are here. There's some places on here to make commitments later on in the service, or prayer requests. You can write those down, even anytime in the service you want. Uh, but also it lets us know who wasn't here so that way we can uh, be praying for them and follow up make sure that we care for our church family so I sure appreciate that and if you are our guest here today special welcome to you and maybe your first your second time with us uh, you can just fill out whatever you feel comfortable filling out we don't want you to feel left out or anything and so then later on in the service along with everyone else you can drop this in the offering basket as it's passed um, If uh, if you wouldn't mind, though, for our guests, if you wouldn't mind, tell us, how did you hear about us? This is really helpful for us. We we want to saturate this valley with the great news about who Jesus is and the incredible opportunity that we have of life in him. And to be able to love our community well. And so we want to make sure that everybody who lives here has that and, and, and understands uh, uh, what a great God we have and, and the joy that he can bring into our lives. And somehow you found out, you heard about us, and if you wouldn't mind, tell us how you did um, that lets us know what we're doing right. Uh, we would sure appreciate that. And that's on this bottom line right here. It says, how would you hear about CCEP? Um, we would sure appreciate that. And for our guests, a way of saying thanks for joining us today and for playing along. We do have a gift for you because everybody likes presents. And so we have one. It's, called, it's a great book called Unshakable. Uh, Standing strong when things go wrong. And so chances are, even though we do live in paradise, things don't always go perfectly. And so this book kind of talks about how the scripture helps us through uh, different things in life, such as family problems or illness or lack of purpose or temptation or financial stress or all these kind of things that a lot of us struggle with. So you can pick up your own free copy of this on the Welcome Center right out there in the foyer on your way out. And then make sure you read the foreword because I wrote it. I'm just so, I still can't believe anybody asked me to write anything, but it does tell you a little about of our church too. So uh, good stuff. All right couple other announcements while you're filling it out. Uh, You'll see this time of year there's not a lot going on because it's summertime and there's a lot going on for everybody like in our uh, so uh, we try to keep the the activities here kind of down but uh, to a minimum but one thing is important is our membership class and that we'll be having today right after this service. So if you've been with us for a couple months or maybe even longer and you're interested in what is our church what's our doctrine what does it mean to be a member how do I go about that all those kind of things that's what this class is all about. And We would invite you to join us it's right after the service it lasts about Two to three hours uh, depends, sometimes longer if we've got a lot of questions. I try to do it so often so that way there's smaller classes and more of a conversation than a lecture. Um, And so that will be right after this message, and we'll be in that room there. Um, And so that'll be good. Also, church picnic's coming up at the end of this month. We do have three services, so there's a lot of new families, folks that uh, you probably may not know, uh, but they're part of the church family. It's a great opportunity to get to know each other. It's the 29th of July. Uh, right down there at the uh the Stanley Park large pavilion we 'll be having more information on as to you know who brings what and all those kinds of things in the next couple of weeks and stuff like that. but just put on your calendar uh, a lot of fun it 'll be after our services and then just till we decide to go home. so there you go all right so that's that 's that let 's uh, get into today 's message. Hopefully I gave you enough time to fill out your connection card and uh we are in this series, like I said, the names of God, and this summer we are talking about different ways in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, how God revealed Himself to us, the different names that were attributed to Him, because those names tell us something about God and who He is, and so we get to know Him better, and uh, so that's what we've been doing. Today's name is a pretty fun one. It's Yahweh Nisi. This is a, another one of those compound names of God, so it's two names. The first one's Yahweh, so if you uh, maybe missed the the message on Yahweh, who is that? It's in the Bible one it's L with the capital O-R-D in there. Um, that's Yahweh. Um, you'll want to make sure that you go back and listen to that because all of these compound names start with that. And so all of Yahweh fits into then what we're talking about. And then today, Nisi which means banner. Uh, and so the Lord is my banner. And it might not make a whole lot of sense why that's such great news, but it really is great news we'll talk about today. But first, our memory verse, which comes to us from Romans 8.31, which says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that a great verse? in context, as we get into Romans 8, here's what's happening. It's saying, this is talking about the greatest battle of all battles, the battle for our very souls, right? Our battle for our salvation. And here's the thing, it's saying, if God if Jesus, who is God, came and died for you and for me died to, to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again, right and then is before God the Father, He purchased you and he is now before God the Father, and he is now advocating on your behalf. who on earth can possibly persuade God that you are now guilty, that you are no longer saved? right It's like can angels or demons or anybody else know. This is the amazing thing, is the battle for you has been won. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, if it's so true in that very personal, very powerful battle, then it's also true in lots of other places in our life. And it's an important verse for us to get, uh, to remember that that the power is in God. And this fits in nicely with what we're talking about today. So, since it's a very long one, uh, maybe first, we're going to go, we'll probably only say it three times. So just say it along with me. Here we go. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. All right, again. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. All right, let's test ourselves. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. Awesome. Now, this is so true in our spiritual life, isn't it? At the times that we feel like we're attacked, like I'm guilty, or that God might not like me, or all those kinds of things, because I'm just not perfect. And I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. And so I have those days. And the enemy is there. He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. What he does. And this memory verse reminds us that it's not about you or me the powers in God. So I encourage you, memorize this, because it helps us overcome that great battle. In order to do that, I know this is a short verse, but it's oftentimes easy to forget that we're supposed to memorize things. which is why in your bulletins, there's a Bible memory verse card. It looks like a business card, because you're doing business with God. And you take that out, if you wouldn't mind, put it in your pocket, your wallet, put tape at the back of your phone, whatever you need to do, and remind yourself of that truth this week. And as we do, let's talk about another battle in which we see that this truth really played out. Not just in the spiritual, but in a very physical way. Um, this battle comes to us. It's, it's recorded in Exodus 17. So if you have your Bibles, wouldn't you mind uh, just pulling them out and opening them up to Exodus 17. We're going to be starting in verse 1. If you have one of our Bibles um, here, within, that's going to be on page 50. If you don't have a Bible or maybe forgot yours or need one, we've got a bunch of them in the back there right by the sound booth and a bookshelf there. You're welcome to, to help yourself to those. And if you need a Bible, keep it our gift to you. Uh, so as we turn there, let's give you a uh, t- a little context here. Yahweh Nisi, where this name comes from, is from this story. And it comes from a very important biblical event uh, that takes place, like most of these names happen. And so to understand what, what happened this biblical event, I need to give you some context. What's happened up to this point? Well, this is in the book of Exodus. Exodus uh, is the second book in the Bible. First is Genesis. Genesis talks about how to get to the world, all the way down to the place where we have the people of Israel. How are they now in Egypt? Exodus is how they leave Egypt, like they exit Exodus. Okay, so this is part of that story. Now, we go back into Genesis, we realize there's this guy named Abraham that God made a covenant with. So there would be a people of Israel. And Abraham, uh, Abraham had a promised son named Isaac. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. And Abraham was like 100 years old. He finally has a son. And it's just an amazing miracle. Isaac is a child of promise. Isaac has twins, right? And so who's going to be the child of promise? There's one There's named Esau, he was the older of the two, and then there was Jacob, the younger of the two twins, right? They were twins, but one was born a little bit early, so Esau should have been the child of promise. And this will play in today's message, right, in the story that we have here. Well, Esau, though he should have been the child of promise, he wasn't very smart. And he sold, and I'm not kidding, he sold the promise for a bowl of soup, and not even good soup, lentil soup, to his brother, isn 't that horrible so he, so Esau loses out to his brother Jacob, buys the promise for a bowl of soup. Esau then gets mad about it some time later and because he also uh, tricked his dad later on in life to get the promise the blessing and Esau gets mad and then Jacob runs off and, and hides for a while and gets married and all this kind of stuff, and eventually comes back and so there was some bad blood between these brothers. And uh, near the end of, of kind of the, their story, we find that Jacob is coming back home. And he's terrified of Esau, that he's going to meet him. And so uh, he has his camp set up, figuring that his brother is just going to slaughter him. But he doesn't. But uh, but on the way back, uh, Jacob, his name means heel grabber, which um, in their that language was like deceiver, like trickery man. That was his name. And he had proven that pretty much his whole life. And so on his way back, before he meets his brother, God wrestles with him like they have a, a straight up wrestling match and they wrestle all night long and at the end of it God touches his hip makes him um, limp so that way he remembers that he had this wrestling match but at the end of the match then God renames him and he says your name isn't isn't deceiver man anymore your name is Israel which means wrestles with God which is pretty pretty cool. So God now changes His name, and He He reunites with with His brother Esau, and that's kind of the end of of what we figure is their story as brothers, but not as their children. Then we have then Jacob, who is who is Israel. Now he has twelve kids, twelve sons, and those twelve sons become the twelve tribes of Israel. Those sons have kids, and all those kind of stuff. They end up in Egypt. The things are going well for a while. Then things go south on them, and there's a Pharaoh that's there and he doesn't know who they were and why they were there. And so they make them slaves. And so now they're slaves in Egypt and they're slaves for quite some time. Hundreds of years as slaves and things were really bad. And so this is the end of Genesis. Then we get into Exodus and God says, all right, enough of this slavery stuff. You're going to go back to the promised land. And so he raises up a, a young man who is named Moses to be their deliverer. Now, Moses was a slave. And at the time, all of the boys that were um, Israelites were supposed to be thrown in the Nile River so they'd be drowned. And which, but Moses' mom couldn't bear to do it. So she put him in a basket and, and sent him down the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter finds him and he gets brought up in Pharaoh's house as one of Pharaoh's own family. Which is just a fascinating story and you should read it. It's an amazing thing how God works. For 40 years Moses grows up as a prince of Egypt and then one day as a 40 year old, which is about my age, he looks and he sees some of his people, the Israelites, being mistreated. And he gets so mad by this, and and, and the injustice, he does something stupid. He tries to take it into his own hands, the battle into his own hands, and he goes down and he murders this Egyptian that was mistreating one of his Israelite brothers. And so then he's a murderer. And so Egypt now is, is going to hunt him down, and they're going to execute him because that's what you do to murderers. And so now Moses runs off. And for 40 years, he works on the outskirts of this massive empire of Egypt as a shepherd. And he gets married, and basically he figures his life is now gone. He's an 80-year-old guy and has been. He used to be a prince, now a shepherd, on the outside working for his father-in-law. And then God shows up and says, oh, I've got something for you. And he makes this bush burn, but doesn't burn. So Moses is like, well, that's cool. And he goes over to it, and God says, "You know, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy. And God meets him and says, Moses, you're going to go back to that land, the place that you are fleeing from. You're going to go back there. And you're going to set my people free. And Moses, of course, had some questions and some concerns, as you would think. And God answers them. And one of the things that God does is, 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 is Moses said, well, how, what's going to validate the fact that I say that you, you sent me, right? And, and God says to Moses, hey, you see that stick over there? Go pick it up. Someone's like, all right, I'll go pick up the stick. And he picks up the stick, and God says, cool. See that stick? And he says, yeah, I see the stick. God says, drop that stick onto the ground. He's like, all right, drop the stick. And then it turns into a snake. Whoa. And Moses, of course, is greatly impressed by this. And then God says, pick it back up. And he's like, okay. And he picks it up, and it turns into a stick again. He's like, all right, there's a trick I can use to show that God's power. So he goes into Egypt, and with this stick becomes a very important stick in the people of Israel. And he plays into our story again today. So, Moses goes back, and he meets with the Pharaoh, and he says, you got to let me people go, and Pharaoh's like, nah, I don't think so, and Moses is like, oh yeah, well God sent me, he says, how do you know God sent me? He says, watch this, and he throws a stick on the ground, turns into a snake, and he's like, ha ha, right? And then Pharaoh, he has uh, all these sorcerers around him, there's three of them, and these sorcerers are like, oh, we can do that, and they throw their sticks on the ground, and they turn into snakes, and then God's stick eats up the other sticks, and then Pharaoh picks it up, and he like, walks out with their, their walking kick sticks, I think that's pretty cool, so then so then all those Egyptian guys didn't have their sticks anymore, right? And he begins with showing that God is more powerful. Well, then of course Pharaoh is was, was being honored and he was like, "Nah, you can't go because he didn't want his, you know, free labor force to leave." And so God sends 10 plagues, and eventually Pharaoh's like, "All right, you got to go." So they have the Passover and they go. And now you have millions of these Israelites are now leaving Egypt. Millions of them following Moses with his cool stick, right? Marching, there. and they're following God. God's a big, like he's a big like a tornado of uh, of fire in front of them. That's how they knew to follow him, and then or like, and also like clouds. It was so they knew where God was. So they're like, God says, "Follow me," and so Moses is following, and people are following, and and God leads them down to the Red Sea, and. And they're at the Red Sea, and it looks like they're kind of like, well, you can't really, where are you going to go from here? And Pharaoh has a change of heart again. And Pharaoh's like, I'm going to go, and I'm going to bring my slave people back. And so Pharaoh mounts up a huge invasion force. He has all these chariots, which back then it was like having like super weapons. They had these chariots and horses, and they had arrows and spears, and they were the most powerful army that the world had ever known to that point. It was amazing. And they start storming down to go kill the Israelites and to bring some of them back as slaves right and the Israelites could see the, the dust rising from the ground as these chariots are coming after them right and they could hear the, of the ground and it was getting scary and they there was nowhere to go God had led them to a dead end to the sea and then God says don't worry and he says uh, Moses I, you take that stick I gave you and Moses is like I got the stick and he says all right now I want you to touch that the Red Sea right just touch it I step out there, boom, and run over it, and so Moses does, and then God sends this huge wind, and it opens up the Red Sea and dries it out. Now, it took a while, and so God, in that tornado of fire, gets between the Israelites and the Egyptians, and they couldn't get around them, and they great chariots. He was, they were like, hey, you're going to go over here, and God was like, uh-uh. And they go over there, and he's like, uh-uh, right? And they couldn't get there. And so then the people of Israel, finally, the, the Red Sea was open. They are able to go through, and so Moses leads them through, the Red Sea as God watches their rear and then they finally get to the other side and that pillar of fire lifts and the, and the Egyptians now feel like they've got a straight shot right through the Red Sea to go kill all of the Israelites. And so they go right through the Red Sea and then they're halfway through. God closes up the Red Sea and, and destroys that entire army. The largest, most powerful fighting force the world had known to that point. Gun. It was done. It was an amazing thing. Well, then God leads them from that point through a series of think about 10 stops and they end up going to a place called Sinai, which is where God gives them the Ten Commandments and makes a covenant with them and makes them his people. This story takes place between the Red Sea and Sinai. This is right after they had left. And so I want to show you on a map, because I think to understand kind of why things happened the way it happened, just to kind of see where it was. Now, here's, here's where they were, that green area up in the top, that's kind of the Nile Delta, all that kind of stuff. Where it's green, there's food, and there's water. That's where humans want to live. Where there's no green, it's kind of dry. And that's hot, and you get thirsty, and it's kind of bad, and that plays into it, right? So what was the path that the Israelites take? Well, there's two possible places, journeys. There's the traditional route, which takes the Israelites right this way, and that would put Mount Sinai there. Okay? So they crossed the Red Sea at that point, which would mean that today's story takes place right about where that arrow is, on uh, that thing. Now, in the last um, 50 years or so, in the last really 20 or 30 years, there's been um, a lot of really great research. And you know that I love biblical archaeology. I just love it. Uh, that is done and also um, has revealed a second possible uh, route that would take them crossing the Red Sea, not at that first um, inlet, but the second one over there, which means that uh, Mount Sinai would be on the other side near Saudi Arabia and that today's events takes place here. Now, I'm not here to debate which is which it doesn't really matter. Um, I'll show you something from the second site, which I think is interesting, uh, something that I found a couple of weeks ago, a picture. But, um, but it doesn't really matter. What I want you to see today, either one of those two, is it green where they're at? No. It is definitely hostile, hot, uh, dry, difficult terrain. That's where God frees them from, Egypt protects from that green area where there's everything and leads them to the desert. I mean, there is nothing there. There is no water. There's nothing. And so here's what happened is the people, they were free. They got free from all of the, the Egyptian, the slavery, and then from the Egyptian army. The G- army, everything's dead, right? And now they're free, but they are in the middle of a desert. And if you have ever hiked anywhere and forgot your bottle of water, you will understand this was not happy. They had little kids and, and older people, and they were carrying all kinds of loot and all that kind of stuff. And, and so they're walking around, and they're thirsty. And so there's like, God, what are we going to do? Because you need water. And so God he leads them in this, in this he's in this uh, amazing um, tower of, of clouds that are following him. And he leads them to this place where there's these these pools of water. And these pools of water, people are like, oh, good, we have water. And they run up to the water, and they start drinking, and they're like... Pfft. Oh, the water's horrible. And they're like, they're like Mara, which means bitter, right? And if, if that name sounds familiar, uh, you think back in the book of Ruth. There's a gal named Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. She had a rough time. She, she had, a, they had this whole famine that was, this, that was happening in her land. And so she and her husband and her two boys left. And they went to Moab. And then her husband and her two sons die. And she comes back. And what does she say? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. Same word. That's what this water was. It was just bitter water. Why do you want to be around? Why you cannot drink? They're like, well, they're going to, we're they're gonna gonna die of thirst. So we're gonna to to drink this nasty water and die. We're dead either way. That was bad. And so what does God do? He says Moses, Hey, uh, go over there, and I'm gonna make the water sweet. And so Moses does. He goes, ba ba ba, and God makes the water sweet, and then they could drink. It was amazing. God made a miracle, and He showed them that He could even take bitter water and make it sweet in the middle of the desert. And so the people of Israel are like, yay, they drank. And then after that crisis was done, then they thought, we've been hiking for a while because the Red Sea's long, and it's a long hike. And they're like, we're hungry, and there's not a lot of green. And all the snacks we packed from Israel or Egypt are gone. And so what are we going to do? And they're like, we're going to die of hunger. And then God said, don't worry. And they wake up the next morning, and on the ground are a bunch of, like, honey wafers. And they're like, what is it? Which in Hebrew was manna. <laughs> like, I don't know, but it's tasty, and so they started eating, and God said, "Yeah, I'll provide for you. I could make food out of thin air if you need it." And so God provided for them. And so with this, seeing God free them from slavery and from annihilation and from thirst and from hunger, God says, "Now follow me deeper still into the desert." So the people then, they pack up camp and they follow God to a new place called Rephidim. And Rephidim is even deeper into the desert. The thing about Rephidim was, it's not that it had bitter water there, there just was no water at all. I know it's one thing for God to turn bitter water sweet, but God had them camp somewhere. There wasn't even water to be seen. You couldn't look out and see water in any direction. And that's where we, we pick up our story. In verse 1 here, it says the whole Israelite community set out for the desert of sin. That's in Sinai. And they traveled from place to place as the Lord commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And you know, really, when I first read that, I thought, man, Moses, why is he so upset, right? Well, He's like, well, for starters, God just had saved you from the Israel- The Ten Commandments. Don't forget about, well, not the kind of the Ten Plagues. Do you remember that? And the Red Sea just a few days ago? Do you remember that? And you see that big tower of-, of cloud there? And you remember just a couple days ago, he gave you water from bitter water and the food that you've been eating from the ground every day, right? Moses is like, how much? I imagine he was probably thinking, how much can God prove to you he didn't bring you out to kill you? So yeah, I can see why he was upset with them, but. But they were still thirsty, and they didn't see where there could be water. And so, because they said the people were thirsty for water, and they grumbled against Moses. And so in verse 4, it says, Moses then cried out to the Lord. And he says, What am I going to do with these people? They are ready to stone me. And this is where you show how funny God is. He's got a good sense of irony. And uh, how were they going to kill Moses? Stone him. They are going to kill him with rocks. And God was like, I got a rock for you. So, that's his next thing he does. So, so then the Lord answered Moses, go to the pe- in front of the people and take with you some elders of Israel and in your hand, what is he going to bring? That staff with which you struck the Nile and go and I will be there with you at the rock of Horeb and strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And so Moses does this. And the sight of the elders and all in Israel and then he called the place Masa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Oh, Moses does this. God says, all right, take that stick, that one that I gave you. It's pretty cool. And, and I want people to see this. And, I, and something else that's interesting in here. It says, Moses, I want you to go up there, but I will be there too, standing there. This is an amazing thing that God was like, all right, you people. So Moses is in front of everybody and God's there. He's standing there. And he says, take that stick. I want the people to see that, here I am. I'm the one that's going to do this. You don't see water? You think it's just rocks? I can make water out of rocks. Boom. And then water. And the people are like, yay. And they drink. And it's great because they realize that God can do anything. And then Moses wants to remind them of this lesson. And so what does he name the place? He doesn't name it Water Rock, which I think most of us would. Right? He names it Massa Meribah, which means quarreling and testing. <laughs> He's like, you guys. Don't forget, next time you want to coral and test, I'll tell you, go back to Mirabah see what you find. It's important to have these, these things to point back to. And so Moses points them so then God builds the faith of the people of Israel. He brings water from a rock. Now have you ever been in a place like that where where God is, has just seems like he 's led you to the desert like you 're like, we are doomed there is no hope i, I can't i can 't even see how i 'm gonna and then all of a sudden God shows up and then like you see that it was definitely him that carried you through because this is not a uh, This is not a a rare thing. This is common for Christians that God oftentimes brings us to a point that we recognize that we can't save ourselves so that we can finally trust him that he's going to save us, so we can stop looking at our circumstances and start remembering that it's God is the one that we're following. And he's got it. And if God is for us, who could be against us? See, God brought his people to that point. But here's the thing. At least for me, sometimes I will see God's hand in my life this way. I will see his deliverance. I'll be like, man, you freed me from those Egyptians. And then you freed me from nasty water, and then you got me food, and then you got water from a rock. You're amazing, God. Thank you. And I think that the, the battle is over. I think that's what it was all about. But it's not what it's about. I think sometimes we get through these things, and we go through the trial, and we see God's hand, and then we're, our faith is built, and we think, oh, that was, that's it. And so we, we let our guard down. But oftentimes, that God brings us to those points, not because he just wants us to know to trust him, because we, there's a point that we're going to need to trust him. He's preparing us for the battle. And that's exactly what happened here in this story. Because right after that, in verse 8, we read, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. I mean, this is right on the, on the heels of them getting water from a rock. God had just done this, had proven that, that he could be trusted, that he was powerful, that 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 he was the one that that was had the he could take care of them. And as soon as that happened, the next thing, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Why the Amalekites? Who were they? Well, remember the guy Esau? You know, Jacob and Esau? Well, Esau had a grandson named Amalek. And Amalek, uh, he uh, was apparently pretty powerful and all that, and they had a bunch of descendants and all those things, became a very powerful, warring nation that inhabited the area that is modern-day Saudi Arabia. They were brutal, harsh people. Now, the Amalekites should have, because they were related to the Israelites, right? They, were, they, were, they should have said, ah, oh, the Israelites are freed from slavery from Egypt, <laughs> and they should have welcomed them in with hospitality, but did they show them hospitality? No, they go and assault them in the middle of the desert where the Amalekites, because this was their home territory, they would have known there wasn't water there, and there are millions of refugees, and instead of sending aid, what do they bring? Swords and spears. They're going to slaughter these people where they have no hope, at least they thought. The Amalekites were brutal, and they were wicked, and they were a type of people that became a thorn in the side of Israel for many, many years. And they attack Israel here. Instead of showing hospitality, they show an attack. And so God brings up a new leader, a warrior named Joshua. First time we see him in Scripture. It says here, so Joshua, says uh, here, so the Amalekites came and Moses says to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. That's the battle plan. Which is, if you think about it, like they don't teach this at like the military war college or anything like that. This is normally not the battle plan that they teach. Hey, uh, Joshua, who you were just a slave a few days ago, probably not a lot of military training. Yeah, take some of those other slaves who probably have no idea how to fight. And go fight this army that's coming to destroy us on their home turf. And Joshua, like, and, oh, and Moses like, and this is what I'm going to do? I'm going to climb on top of that hill with my staff. There you go. That's the plan. And so what has happened? Joshua does it. He says, Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered him. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone under and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. That's the victory. That's a weird battle, isn't it? You're like, why did it matter if the stick was up in the air or not? <laughs> well, here's the deal. Um, in ancient warfare, actually, all the way up to really World War One, armies when they went into battle, they would bring their banners. They would bring these standards that they would have, and it would show who was fighting who, right? So they'd have their flag up, right? They'd have their banner. This is our army, and it was a rallying point. It was like, this is the presence. This is who we are. This is our identity. We are here, and we are in power, and we're going to come take you, right? And if your standard, if your banner came down, it meant that either your leadership retreated or you lost. <laughs> it was a big deal. The banner was up. But a banner represented the power of presence. So sometimes like a king would show up on the battlefield and he would have his own special banner. And when the king showed up on a battlefield and his banner showed up, it was like a huge morale boost because it meant that the king was there. And along with the king, all of his armies and all of the might and all of the power of the king was now present and, and brought to bear in that battle. So if, if your king showed up, it was good news for you, right? Because you had, you had reinforcements, you had everything you needed. The power of the king was there. And as long as the king's banner was up, You could look to it and became a rallying point. You said, this is who we're fighting for. It became something, someone to fight for. It also became, it's encouragement. We have all of this power. But if the king's banner went down in the middle of a battle, it was not good. It either meant that the battle was turning south and the king decided that he was going to retreat. So he pulls out. And so he's going to pull out some of his best guards and stuff like that as he retreats. Which means that now your king is pulling out things are bad and you're probably going to die. Or it means that the king died and the battle is over and you've already lost. So when Moses was up on the hill, he wasn't just lifting a staff, he was lifting a banner. This is a staff that people recognize that this staff represent God's power. It was God's power in Egypt. It, was, it represent God's power splitting open the Red Sea and making nasty water sweet and water from a rock Right, it was, a, it was an important thing so when Moses held that staff up he was reminding the people that God was there the full power of God was present in the battle and as long as he kept it lifted it was a sign to the people that God is here this is God's power but when the, he would lower the staff it would be sending a message to everyone maybe God was backing out now we're on our own and so it was important for him to keep his arms lifted, which is why he brought Aaron and her, because he knew he'd get tired. Because <laughs> how long can you keep a staff raised in the air like this, especially if you're 80? Right? And so this is a great lesson, I think, for us, and and I think uh, cooperation, working together. Think about the church. Was this battle? Let's go to the battle. Let's, let's go to the victory. The victory is the fun part. Like, we have victory. It's... Uh, Was it just something that he could do on his own, Moses? Did he just win this battle by going to the top of the hill and raising a stick? No, because raising the standard is not what... There had to be Joshua. There had to be the army. There had to be somebody fighting the Amalekites. If there was nobody fighting the Amalekites, there would be no battle to win, right? There had to be somebody out there. At the same time, we see that it was important that they recognize this, that the the Israelites didn't have the strength or the ability in themselves to win the battle. They were just freshly freed slaves. <laughs> and the proof of that they couldn't win the battle on their own was the fact that every time that Moses' hands came down, they started losing. As brave as Joshua was, he couldn't win the battle on his own either. They needed each other. And it is like that for us in the church. You recognize that God has called us to do a mighty work. And none of us can do it on our own. Even Moses, great Moses, he couldn't do his part all by himself, all alone. Everybody wears out Eventually. Which is why you need to be part of a church. That we cannot go and do what Christ has called us to do in this world alone. That's why being part of a church is so important. And we all have a role to play. We all have our part to do. Some of us play the role of Joshua's. And sometimes we get to play the role of Aaron or her. And sometimes you get to play the role of Moses. But all of us have a role to play. And they all matter. But here's the thing we can't forget is that the victory came from God. You see, we have to be faithful, don't we? God says, go into the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Right? This is what God told us, we have to be faithful. Love our families, forgive people, care for other people even when they can't pay you back. We need to go, we gotta fight the battle. Forgive people when they don't deserve it. Right? Be nice to people when they're really nasty to you. We have to fight the battle. We have to go out there and we have to be faithful. But let's never forget that it's not us that's gonna win it because you, you don't have the skill to overcome this world. We have to be faithful, but God is the one who wins the battle. He's our banner. It's his power. And so in this victory that we recognize that Moses only rose the the rod, the only reason the stick was powerful is because it was representing a God who was very, very powerful. It was uniting the people under the banner of God. And so God wins. And so what happens next is that Moses, the very first thing he does, is he, uh, he builds a memorial to it. And so he says here, it says uh, in verse uh, 14, so the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to re- be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears about it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Now, this is a crazy thing. God says the first thing happens after this, write it down. Why? Because we have short memories, don't we? I mean, it was just like the, that day that God brought water from a rock. It was just a couple of days earlier that he, that he started bringing manna from heaven. It was, it was not that long ago that he destroyed the Egyptian army. And the people all the way through kept forgetting. And we are no better than them. That's why I say when God does something in our life, in your life, when you see him show up, write it down. Remind yourself. This is God in your life. This is God, real God in your life. And this is the evidence of him in your life. We cannot be so, so, so uh, short-memoried. We have to, to, to look back and say, you know what? God has done these things, so we stop panicking next time we come up against an adversary. Write it down. But I also love that God says, I want you to tell one guy in particular. So tell Joshua. Why? Well, Joshua at this point, he, is just, he just came out from slavery, but God had big plans for Joshua, didn't he? But Joshua also had skin in the game now. Joshua, he saw his people be attacked, unprovoked attack, brutally, by this group of scoundrels, this horrible nation that came up trying to destroy them, and Joshua had to go out and fight these guys. And God was like, Joshua, I helped you win the battle, but also I think God was taking a little victory lap. He says, Joshua, but I want you to know this, I'm going to win the war too. These nasty people who have attacked my people, they're not going to stand. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to finish this, Joshua. You don't have to. The battle is mine. And you know what happened is that God did do that. First, uh, King Saul, God commanded King Saul to go and to wipe out the Amalekites, but he didn't do it. So then it was Hezekiah in the 8th century B.C. who was faithful. And and with God's command, wiped out the Amalekites completely. Well, there's none left. It was... They are completely gone, which is why I had to explain who the Malachites are, because there's none around. God keeps his word. And it's a very terrifying thing to be on the opposite side. If God is for you, who can be against you. But if you are against God, it doesn't matter who's for you. And the Malachites, of course, picked the wrong side. And so God wants Joshua to know. And I think it's important for us to see that how kind God is. We oftentimes fight these battles in our life, right? And there's something in the word that says, Jesus said, I've overcome the world. I know you think you might be a person, it might be it might be an event, it might be health, it might be money, it might be something that you are fighting right now and it seems so big. <laughs> I want you to know that God has overcome this world, has overcome it. The problem that's plaguing you now is not going to be with you forever. It won't. It has been defeated. <laughs> Take peace in that. But don't spend all of our energy trying to get retribution on things that are already defeated. And so the next thing we find that Moses does, he doesn't just write it down, but then the uh, Later on, he writes this. I think this is really cool. Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is, the people of Israel, they they meet God, they, they go to uh, Mount Sinai, he gives them the commandments, he gives them the people of covenant, and all that, and he brings them to the promised land. And Caleb and, and Joshua and 10 other spies go into the land, they're going to scout it out where they're going to go, and they come back and only Caleb and Joshua are like, yeah, we can do this. The other 10 are like, nah, we can't, so... The people of Israel were faithless, and they said, oh, I know God could take care of the Egyptians, but I don't know about these tall people in this land. And so God's like, that's it, 40-year time out, right? So he sends them into the desert again for a 40-year time out to think about what they had done, right? And uh, then after that, he's like, okay, now you, you ready to go back into the promised land? And the people are like, yes. And so then God gives Moses what's called Deuteronomy, the second giving in the law. That's what it means, second law. And so Deuteronomy, so this is the end of Moses' life. Moses writes this to his people on the verge when they are getting ready to cross back over into the promised land. He says this When you go to war against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and armies greater than yours, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. Isn't that powerful. That wasn't just for the Israelites, that was recorded also for us. We spend so much of our time looking at what we think are the odds. We look out at what we see the enemy is at what the problem is, and we can be so overwhelmed by that because it seems so much bigger than we are. And at times it is, but I will tell you there is no problem in this world that is bigger than God. This was, I think sometimes we look at these problems out there because some of us have this bad doctrine that somebody told us when we were growing up, that God's not going to give you more than you can handle. That is baloney. That is not in Scripture. What's in Scripture is God's not going to give you more temptation than you can handle. You never have an excuse to sin. That's what that means. But God never did say he's not going to give you more than you can handle. The world is more than you can handle. What God promised was he's never going to give you more than he can handle. And he's never going to leave you. There is nothing in this world that is bigger than God. Jesus said, I give you my peace. And why, is, why does Jesus give His peace? Because he says, I have overcome the world. That's why you have his peace. Your enemy, your battle, the things that you go against, I think can, might be a mean person. I think in our culture right now, everything's so political. It's turning family and friends into enemies to one another. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that horrible? Isn't that the fingerprint of the enemy? Make people we love be the people that, we, that despise us or we could despise even worse? How awful. Sometimes it could be health. It could be finances. It could be a bad marriage or a bad relationship with somebody. We look sometimes at the, at the battle and we look at what we're up against and we say it's too big for me. And I'll tell you this, the answer is don't be afraid. So Jesus told us to go make disciples of all nations. He said, All nations means all nations, everywhere, every person, which means that there is nowhere that God doesn't have jurisdiction, which means he is everywhere. His power is in effect everywhere. And he said this you go and do it. You be faithful, make disciples. You baptize them, you teach them to obey everything I've commanded. That's what you need to do. Go and do that. But what's the promise? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The power is God. He is the one that is with us. You be faithful, he is with you. He brings the victory. Whatever you are facing, you have a choice. You can be like Joshua and be faithful, or you can try to fight it on your own. We've got to raise the standard and realize that we need to be fighting God's battles and stop asking him to fight ours. And we need to stand with him. And we've got to stop being panicked by what we see in this world. How many times have you heard people pray for revival in the United States? And we continue to do that, don't we? And I believe that God is big enough to do that. But I think part of it is we need to go and to be part of that revival. We need to go and be the Joshua. We need to love our neighbors and care for people. And we need to, to be that light and just trust God with the battle. But let's not look at our culture and give up. Let's not look at a marriage and give up. Let's not look at our finances and give up. Let's trust God. Let's be faithful to God and let's trust him. And he will win the battle. That's what he does. And so Moses saw this. He lifted his staff, he lifted the banner, and he said, God, he saw God deliver them. So what does Moses do? Well, he writes it down, but the next thing he does in verse 15, he says, Moses built an altar and called it Yahweh Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And he said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites for generation to generation. It wasn't enough for Moses just to, to write it down. Sometimes you need to build something in your life. You look back to and say, this is God. He is my banner. This is what unites us. So the people will be united around the right thing. Not around Joshua being a great military leader. Not around Moses having a fancy stick. But God is the banner. And he builds an altar. Now, you remember that, that second uh, uh, possible route that the Israelites took. This is a site from that that just in the last uh, couple of years uh, has been discovered, which I think is really fascinating. This is a site where possibly that this event took place. And this was Rephidim, a real possible thing. And one of the reasons that it leads the archaeologists to believe that is right here. Do you see that little circle right there? I'm going to outline it for you so you can see a little circle right there. That, right there, is an altar. Uh, and it's, it has a lot of archaeological indication. It looks like it's very similar to what the uh, Egyptian uh, would use as far as stone crafting and things like this, very similar to a lot of the altars that we see, like the Israelites had built as they crossed into the Promised Land. So that very, it may be. Uh, there's some things to point to it that. That may be Yahweh Nisi <laughs> that you see. You see, you understand that Scripture is not fairy tale. These things actually took place. God fights real battles and wins real battles in real life, and He is the same God today. And if that's Yahweh Nisi, then this is where Moses stood. Looking over the field. And you can see from there, everybody, There is nothing higher than that point. Everybody would be able to see the standard up on that hill. That's why he was there. He needed to point to God. Now there's the staff. There's Charleston Heston doing a great job. Uh, right? And you look at that. It's just a stick. right? But it was more than a stick. It stands for so much more. The banner, when it was raised, when Moses was lifting that, was not lifting a stick. He was lifting God up and saying, God is powerful. That stick represented God's power and defeated the Egyptians. It it was God's power that opened the Red Sea. It was God's power that that bought water from a rock. It is God's power. It reminded them. It was a symbol of God's power. And so the people rallied under that. And there was another Nisi. That was brought into Egypt through or Israel through uh, Moses as well, a different time. When, when the people were in their great 40-year timeout, right? they were naughty again. And so God sent them a plague. And so the people were getting real sick and they were dying. And, and they were like, whoa, we've messed up and we need God. And so God was like, all right, repentance, I can work with that. And he says, Moses, make another stick, make another nisi. This is what I want you to do. Take it, wrap a couple of bronze snakes around it. Put it up in the middle of the camp. Anybody who looks at it will be saved. And this time, God brings a Nisi that reminds us that we can be saved by God's grace through faith. It showed us that God's His power, His presence isn't just for winning battles, but it can also defeat death itself. What an amazing thing. See, banners matter something to us, don't they? And that became a standard for the people of Israel. When they saw that, for a long time, this became the standard. The people of Israel will remember that this made them something different. You know, we have banners in our country, though we don't really, we do use them for battle, actually. We sang about them a couple days ago, Star Spangled Banner. Right? Think about the words of that. When the the bombs were in the air and all that kind of stuff and it was a bad night. And what gave the the rider hope? When he looked out and, and saw the battle raging, the flag was still up. The banner is still raised. And with the banner is there, there is hope. And because of that, you think about 4th of July. We are a divided nation, right? We really are. But on the 4th of July, I, I went downtown. I, I don't know why I did that. I, I hate myself, I guess. I don't know. But it was so busy. But it was something amazing. It was a crazy time in our country where, where I didn't see people walk around. Everybody had, like, red, white, and blue on. And, and I saw, like, a like, lot of women had, like, these cool things on their fingernails that looked like flags. And, and they had, uh, like, kids with bandanas, red, white. Everybody had flags, Right? We all rallied under this one nation. Banners matter where identity comes from from them. And I think Moses knew this is why he, he built Yahweh Nisi. There is a banner. For his people need to come under and say we are gods and it is his power. But you know there's another, another Yahweh Nisi that we find in scripture. It's actually, it's this, it's Jesus. Jesus is our Yahweh Nisi. You understand, when Jesus, he wasn't just a guy who talked about God. Jesus is God. When they say, if God exists, then how do we know? Well, he walked on this earth, and he proved it. He did miracles, all those kinds of things that people cannot do. He fulfilled all kinds of prophecies, which shows that God was in, in this for a long period of time. Right? This was not just some guy who could act. Right? And More than that, he raised from the dead, which was pretty amazing. He proved he's God. So when Jesus shows up, it is the full presence of God. When Jesus is there, he is the standard. It is like the king shows up. That's why when Jesus comes back, he has a sash that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. When the king is there, the power of the king is present. And Jesus is here. Jesus is the one who unites us. Which is why if you are here today, or you are in any other churches here in Esses Park that preach the gospel and love the Lord, you're going to find something in any of those churches. It's a cross whether here or if you're in Africa or in your South America or wherever why just like that charlton heston staff right it's not fancy and in and of itself has no power at all but there's a lot of power in the cross because of there's a god that it represents a god who can save even the worst of sinner a god who loves even the person that is the most lost a god that can overcome this world with the most simple of things he's a powerful god And that's why we cross. It's what we rally around. We rally around Jesus, don't we? That's what Christians have in common. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. All of us. He is our Yahweh Nisi. He is our banner. And he's the one that brings us victory. Because where there is Christ, there is victory. He is already overcome. And so, we see this in John 3. Jesus says this about himself. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, it's just like that. You can look to him, be saved by God's grace through faith. He is there to to bring us that. He is is our Nisi. And we are in a spiritual war. We have two battle fronts. One's on the inside, one on the outside. Don't we? Think about that inside battle. You want to do what's right, but you end up not doing what's right. You're just like the Apostle Paul. He writes about that. He says, I want to do what's right, and I don't do it. And I, want, I don't want to do what's wrong, and I find up I'm always doing what's wrong. Right? What's wrong with me? Who can save me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to the Lord. Thanks be to Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> That's the power. There's this battle on the inside. See, this is why legalism never works. We can follow the law all day long, but we'd be like Joshua out there fighting the war without any God behind us. That's why legalism just leads to nasty people. But it's why faithfulness is different. And though they look very similar, faithfulness is very, very different. And following God and saying, God, I'm not doing, I'm, I cannot, in my own power, really forgive this person. I can't be as loving as I need to be, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow as best I can. And when I mess up, I'm going to say, God, I'm sorry, and help me. I need help. But when we follow God, when we start to love our spouses and respect other people and care for those and and not retaliate when we want to retaliate, right? When we start to give away our things to those that need them, even though they can't ever pay us back, when we start to really care and love and and serve other people, even when it's humbling and hard, when we begin to do that, God does something in us. He begins to then demonstrate that uh, this change in us. He transforms us from the inside. It's called fruits of the spirit. That doesn't come through law. That doesn't come just because of obedience, Right? It comes because God is working in us. He just says, be obedient. And he's the one that brings about love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness, kindness, goodness, all those great things. You're going to find them in your life. You've got to be like Joshua. You've just got to be faithful. You've got to go out and fight the fight. But don't think that the fight is what's changing you. God wins the battle on the heart. But he doesn't just win the battle here. He wins the bigger battle as well. The battle around us. And the real battle is not what we think it is. In Ephesians 12, we are told, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the real enemy. The enemy is not somebody who votes different than you. The enemy is not the person that's just being nasty to you. The enemy is not the person who hurt you. It is hard for us to get that. And I think oftentimes we fight the wrong fight. And I'll tell you, God is not going to fight the wrong fight. God has already won the real battle. And he says this, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. That's what he says to do. He says pray for those that that harm us. That's what he says to do. He says care for those that can't pay you back. He says forgive the people who don't deserve it because he forgave you and you didn't deserve it either. This is the battle. We don't fight against small things like other people or political parties or stuff like that, we fight on a much bigger scale. God is building a kingdom and he's called us to it. The bigger things. And we fight the real fight. We call out the enemy in the darkness where it is and we go against that. And we let God win the war. So just be faithful. Fight the fight. Do your part. We're in it together as a church. We all have a role to play. And we'll let God win, so what do we learn today on this? Well, I think the start is, is that God is for us who can be against us. Don't give up. I don't know what your situation is, but it's never too, it's never hopeless because God is with you. But make sure you're fighting God's battle and let him win. Something else I think we understand is Yahweh to the Lord is our banner, He is, He must be. A banner is a sign of power and presence. Recognize that. A banner is, is a rallying point and then therefore recognize that Jesus is our Yahweh Nisi. Fight for him. Live for him. Let him do his work in us. How do you practice that? How do you put this in the practice today? Well, if you type your connection card, pull it out. I've got some ideas, some next steps. How do we live in this? First thing that you can do I think you can memorize Romans 8.31. Maybe that's what you want to do this week. If God is for us, who can be against us. Stop being afraid by what you see. God is so much stronger. Or maybe what you need to do is, is you need to read Exodus 17. I showed you pictures where very likely this actually took place. These are real events. This is real history. God is not imaginary. Now, you want to read the, what happened and how powerful God is? It's the same God today. You want to see how he reveals himself so you can recognize him in your life? Read Exodus 17. Or maybe what you need to do is you need to rally under Christ. What do I mean by that? I want to think about what is your banner really? Maybe some introspection time this week. And how do you figure out what your banner is? Figure out what what does your life revolve around? Because that's really the most important thing to you, isn't it? What the rest of your life revolves around, what you're willing to sacrifice other things for? That's what you, And if it's Christ, that's awesome. Rally there. But if you find there's something else, it might be other good things. It might be family. It might be pleasure. It might be uh, work. It might be who knows what it is. But if you find that you, your life revolves around anything other than Jesus, he's not the biggest, most important thing in your life, you're under the wrong banner. And you're not going to win that battle on your own. So maybe what you do is do some introspection this week and say, you know, I'm going to rally under Christ. I'm going to really make sure that he's my priority in my life so I can see his power in my life. Or maybe what you need to do is you need to attend the membership class. Not on the 15th. We're going to do it in just a couple minutes. Uh, But you need to be part of a church family. You need to, to do your part. You know, you, you can't just stand on the sidelines. You need to be doing something faithfully, and that's what a part of being a church is about, helping us connect you to the service that God has prepared you for. And So maybe that's what you want to do, be part of that, then just join me after the message. Uh, we'll start in about a half an hour in that uh, room over there. We would love to have you. If there's another commitment you need to make, write it down. If God's telling you to do something, write it down. I'll support you as your pastor. If you have a prayer request, this is your time. Let I pray for you this week, but if I know how to pray for you, uh, specific prayers get specific answers. So let's talk to God. Let's ask him. Um, you could take a minute and write those down and in this minute we're going to take our offering. If we take our offering, you take those envelopes, or offering envelopes, put your offering in there, put them in the offering basket as they're passed and then also take this connection card, put it in the offering basket as well. And uh, let's, uh, let's rally to Jesus. Let's do that. Let's pray for our offerings now before we, we take them and then uh, we'll have the worship band um, close us with some, some great worship. Let's pray. Father God, You are, you're it. We we pledge our allegiance first and most to you. You are powerful, you are good, you are loving, you are kind. You meet all of our needs. You have overcome every foe. And you've called us to go and to represent you in this community. Help us to do that in a right way. Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts. And if there's anything standing between us and you, Father, that you would do us the kindness of removing it. Showing us what we must lay down. Father, and so our priorities can be right. God, help us to be a loving church, a community that cares for one another in truth, not just with words, a community that reaches out to this community in a way that represents your character well. Father, we've made commitments today. We know that legalism is not gonna change us, so help us not to do these things to try to earn your approval, but instead, Lord, let us just be faithful in these actions to trust you. To invest in your kingdom. To say may your kingdom come and your will be done in our life. just as it is in heaven. Lord in that I pray that you would transform us. Change us in the people that we need to be. Help us fight the right fight for you. With you. For your glory. And Lord Father too we pray for our offerings and our tithes. We bring these back to you. One of obedience but Father also out of love. Thank you for caring for us. Now we invest in your kingdom. For you are worthy. We lift all this to you in the powerful, wonderful name of our Yahweh Nisi Jesus, amen.